Hello, I am Alyssa Carroll, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where sometimes we veer off of the serial killer path to see what else lurks within the shadows of true crime stories. This podcast will be on Edward Paynell. Now, I found out about this man's story, actually, on a Facebook group that I belong to, secretly, of course, and I'm not sure if the group or its admins want to be specifically mentioned in my podcast, so if you're listening, and if you do, please let me know and I'll give you credit. Now, the story was a shared article to the group, and after I began reading this man's story, I knew I had to share this with you guys. I had no idea that this man even existed. So let's jump right in. Edward Paynell was known as the Beast of Jersey. He was born in 1925 and was described to be a member of a rather affluent family on the island of Jersey. So let's learn just a bit about the island. Now there are some islands between England and France in the English Channel. Jersey really sits just barely off of the coast of France. While Jersey is not part of the United Kingdom, the UK is constitutionally responsible for its defenses. Jersey is a self-governing parliamentary democracy under a constitutional monarchy, but with its own financial, legal, and judicial systems. The lieutenant governor on the island is the personal representative of the Queen of England. English is the main language spoken on the island, and they also use British currency, but there is a very strong French influence in the area. Jersey really has a very, you know, interesting and rich history. But let's get on into the story. Now, guys, I wish that I could give you Edward's entire childhood from recent ancestry on up, but I can't. In the time that I had to research, I dug and dug and could find nothing other than his family having some social standing and money. I did find out that his father's name was Emil Paynell, but not the one that was killed in Germany. And that's really it. There are no stories of childhood abuse or neglect, and in fact, it was stated that he enjoyed being on his own, going for walks, that he was a bit of a free spirit. And that's it. The only trouble that Edward really ever got into was being caught stealing food to give to starving families back in World War II when Germany occupied the island. He was imprisoned for about a month, and that's it. And I don't really even consider that much of a crime, wanting to feed starving people. That's really not bad. We know that Edward was married once, but it ended in divorce for whatever reason. He then went on to meet Joan, who had two children from a previous marriage. He had been hired on as a handyman because Joan and her family ran children's homes. 
Though I don't know how long they dated, it is reasonable to assume that they dated at least for a while. The couple were married in 1959 when Edward was 34 years old. But little did Joan know, she married a very sick and disturbed man. You see, in November 1957, two years prior to their marriage, Edward decided to act upon a fantasy that he'd been having for a long time. He approached a 29-year-old nurse who was waiting for a bus, wearing a very eerie rubber mask. Faking an Irish accent, he spoke for just a moment. He then grabbed her. He dragged her into a nearby field and sexually assaulted her so severely that she had to have multiple stitches but she survived and gave the police a description. Edward's second attack was the next year, in March of 1958. A 20-year-old young woman was walking home after getting off of the city bus when all of a sudden a rope was put around her neck and she was dragged into a nearby field. Edward brutally raped her. Only two months later, Edward did the exact same thing to a 31-year-old woman who was walking home from a bus stop. So then the same year that Edward was to marry Joan, he approached a teenage girl walking home. He wrapped a rope around her neck and drug her into a field, only this time the girl fought, and she fought hard. She managed to fight him off and escape. She described her attacker as wearing a foul-smelling raincoat. His face was covered in a rubber mask, using what she believed to be a fake Irish accent. Two months later, in October 1959, Edward attacked a 28-year-old woman in exactly the same fashion as the others. So, even though this island is only a bit above 40 square miles in size, the island detectives began to realize they might have a serial attacker on their hands. The descriptions of the man were the same. The victims all said he looked to be in his early to mid-40s, around 5 foot 6 inches tall, and used a fake Irish accent. He wore a long raincoat that had a very strong, musty odor, with a rope tied around the waist that he took off to tie his victim's hands together. While the authorities wanted to keep the situation kind of, you know, hush-hush because they didn't want to scare the community, they also didn't want to hurt the tourism economy. But of course, word had already gotten around and Edward was aware of the community's fears. So in 1960, he decided to change his tactics. Now he had already been doing some research and taking photos of potential victims and their homes, watching their houses and, you know, the goings on of the families, their schedules, their routines. He also decided to change his preferred victims. In February of 1960, he crept inside the bedroom window of a 12-year-old boy who was sleeping. 
The boy awakened to the sight of a man wearing a large coat with strange hair and some kind of mask on his face in his bedroom. Edward quickly tied the boy's hands together, put a rope around his neck, walked him outside and into a nearby field where he proceeded to rape that child. The next month, a 25-year-old young woman was walking to a bus stop one evening when Edward pulled alongside her and offered her a ride. He told her that he was a doctor and that he was on his way to go pick up his wife. So, the woman took him up on his offer and got inside the car. She noticed that the man was wearing a large coat, um, a cap, and some gloves, but she couldn't really make out his face due to it being dark. And after driving for a bit, he pulled over into a field. He then punched her in the face and threatened to kill her. He then tied her hands behind her back. He dragged her out of the car and raped her. Once he was finished, he placed her back in the car and drove off. Somehow, the young woman was able to get the door open. She jumped from the car and ran screaming for help. That same month, in a somewhat secluded cottage, a 43-year-old mother and her 14-year-old daughter were sleeping. The phone rang in the middle of the night, waking the mother up. She got up to answer the phone, but after she picked up the receiver and said, Hello, she heard a click and then the dial tone. She thought nothing of it, and she went back to bed. About an hour later, she woke up to a sound coming from downstairs. Figuring it was her daughter, she made her way downstairs, just as the lights in the house just went out. She then heard someone walking around, so she rushed to her phone to call the police, but then saw that the line had been cut. Edward then grabbed her, demanding all of her money and even threatened to kill her, but was distracted when he heard the 14-year-old daughter begin to come downstairs to see what the commotion was about. He let the mother go, and she promptly ran from the house, fleeing to a neighbor's house to call the police. She immediately returned home, only to find that her daughter had been violently raped. Now, guys, I am trying very hard not to judge this mother. Did she not realize her daughter was coming downstairs? Did just Edward hear her coming? Because why in the hell would any mother abandon her child with an intruder in the home? I would think her instincts would have kicked in and she would have done literally anything to protect her child. I cannot understand why she fled that house. I can't. But okay. In April of 1960, less than a month later... A 40-year-old woman was awakened in her bedroom by a man wearing a mask. She, of course, began screaming, and for whatever reason, Edward then removed his mask, revealing his face. He tied her hands and led her out of her home, where he raped her. It would appear that the level of terror 
he had felt in his prior attacks was quickly becoming less than he needed. So I surmise taking his mask off kind of upped that adrenaline rush from the woman's heightened fear. Then in July of 1960, Edward abducted an eight-year-old boy from his home. He sexually assaulted him, then dumped him back on his doorstep. Now, while this was all going on, Edward was not only working as a handyman at a children's home, he was also beginning to find work as a building contractor. He also treated the children in the children's homes very well. They knew him as, quote, Uncle Ted, who was good and kind to them. He gave them candy. He paid attention to them. He played with them. He even dressed up as Santa on Christmas to distribute gifts. So then the next year, in February of 1961, Edward attacked and assaulted a 12-year-old boy, then an 11-year-old boy in March. He then violently raped an 11-year-old girl in April. Of course, by now, the citizens of Jersey, well aware that there is a serial rapist among them, were demanding answers. But the police were no nearer catching him. So with mounting frustration, understandable frustration, they finally caved and contacted the Scotland Yard for assistance. With their help, the authorities appealed to the public for any information they might have on the attacker or possible suspects. And again, they got basically the same information. The attacker struck at night under the cover of moonlight on weekends between 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. They all stated he was male, around 40 to 45 years old, with a, a mustache. He was about 5 foot 6 tall. He wore a raincoat with a very distinct, musty, unpleasant odor. He wore gloves and a cap. He wore a rubber mask or sometimes even a scarf that covered just the bottom half of his face. He carried a flashlight, but he had put some kind of tape over the end where the light would hit a much smaller, more singular area, if you can picture that. Most all of his victims were attacked by him coming through the bedroom window and taking them out of their own home. Some survivors said he blindfolded them, tied them up, put a rope around their neck, and led them to a field where he raped them. That was the consensus. The description of his voice was always the same, soft, with a fake Irish accent. And for whatever reason, he had mentioned a wife as well as a mother who had died from alcoholism. Why he's talking to his victims about this, I don't know. But that last part is interesting. I couldn't find anything out about his mother at all. But him mentioning his wife, now that's something. Because during this time, Edward and Joan's marriage was on the rocks, and it had gotten that way fairly quickly after the marriage. Now they did have a daughter together, though I can't find anything about her either, but the marriage was just 
at this point a piece of paper and nothing more. So Edward had built another sort of wing onto their house for his living quarters, complete with an office and a living room, and he lived there. He and Joan had not had much of a sex life to begin with, but she later stated that he had a very low sex drive. But also at this point, he had a mistress on the side. And then, mysteriously, for two years, Edward stayed quiet. He laid low. Another man had become a suspect in the attacks, though. This was a local fisherman, an avid outdoorsman. He was kind of eccentric. And he was questioned and brought in as a suspect because he did keep odd hours. He liked going for long walks at night. He was described as a loner, and he used rope to tie his raincoat shut, which admittedly matched the description. But after questioning, though, he was released due to lack of evidence. But the locals couldn't leave it alone. Eventually, his house was burned to the ground, an act of arson, and he was forced to leave the island. Then in April of 1963, out of the blue, Edward attacked and assaulted a nine-year-old boy. Seven months later, he attacked an 11-year-old boy. Two more brutal attacks against another young boy and a teenage boy before the end of 1964, and then silence again for another two years. In 1966, the Jersey police received a letter from the supposed attacker who referred to himself as the Beast of Jersey. The letter said, quote, My dear sir, I think that it is just the time to tell you that you are just wasting your time, as every time I have done what I always intended to do, and remember it will not stop at this but I will be fair to you and give you a chance. I have never had much out of this life, but I intend to get everything I can now. I have always wanted to do the perfect crime. I have done this, but this time let the moon shine very bright in September, because this time it must be perfect. Not one, but two. I am not a maniac by a long shot, but I like to play with you people. You will hear from me before September and I will give you all the clues just to see if you can catch me. Yours very sincerely. Wait and see. Unquote. So then in August of 1966, just as his letter had promised, a 15-year-old girl was attacked in the same fashion as the others, but with a new level of depravity. There were these curious scratches on the victim's torso. They were equally spaced, equal length, etc. But the second victim that he promised in the letter actually didn't happen. Four years later, in August of 1970, a 13-year-old boy was awakened by Edward in his home with a flashlight. Edward demanded the boy get out of bed. He took him to a field. He took his raincoat off this time and had the boy get undressed and lay on the coat, and he sexually assaulted him. Edward then returned the boy to his home, 
Now this boy described the terrifying mask and this boy also had these same wounds on him that matched the scratches from the previous victim. Then nearly a year later, the police were patrolling at night, you know, as they do. Around 11.45 p.m., they pull up to a traffic light when they witness a car just speed right past them and it ran the red light. The policeman pursued the car, which was swerving and driving erratically, sideswiping other vehicles and driving on sidewalks. Finally, the car crashed into a hedge. A man jumped out of the car and he began running away from the scene, but the policemen were able to catch up and arrest him. They took him to the police station and were stunned at what they saw once they got him under the lights. You see, in the light, they really saw how he was dressed. He had on an old raincoat, outfitted with a number of one-inch long nails sticking out of the shoulders and the lapels of the coat. He was also wearing these cloth bands around his wrists with the same nails protruding out. His pants were old and tucked into socks and he was wearing wool gloves. After searching him, they found in his pockets a flashlight with the tape around it, some length of rope, a black wig with kind of weird spiky knotted hair, rolls of tape along with a homemade rubber mask. They were finally able to identify him as 46-year-old Edward Paynell. When they asked him what he was doing out at night, driving so erratically and in that odd costume, he simply stated that, now get this, he was on his way to an orgy. When they asked him why he would need the nails in his costume for this supposed orgy, he said that he had put the nails in his clothing to protect him from anyone that might try to use martial arts against him. And no, I'm not making that up. Clearly, they were confident that they had caught the Beast of Jersey. The police carried out a search of his home and found a small secret room off of the wing he had built for himself. And once they opened the door, they were slapped in the face, you know, overwhelmed with that familiar musty smell that his victims had complained about. Inside the room hung several items of old clothing, homemade wigs, hats, and even fake eyebrows. Near a sizable pile of photographs hung a camera on a hook. The photos were of houses that were later identified as his victim's houses. Sometimes he would watch a house for months and sometimes even years before he acted upon his urges. Also inside this small room was a large collection of occult items referring to black magic, a homemade altar, and a large curved wooden sword affixed to the wall above. The investigators tried to determine a motive for these crimes, and all they could get out of him was either incoherent mumblings or nonsense about curses and magic. 
He claimed to be obsessed with Gilles de Ray and to actually be a descendant of him. But who is Gilles de Ray? Now, this guy was from the 15th century. He established himself from an early age as a warrior of sorts, you know, fighting in the wars of succession in the year 1420 and then against the English in 1427. He was then assigned to the Joan of Arc's guard, fighting many wars alongside her all the way until Paris was attacked. When Joan of Arc was captured, he finally retired to his lands in Brittany. He was born into money, and he had married into even more. And so, since Gilles de Ray was effectively retired, rich, and bored, he decided to get into alchemy. He developed an interest in Satanism, hoping to gain knowledge and power by invoking the devil. He was later accused of kidnapping, torturing, and murdering more than 140 children. He was arrested, he pled not guilty, but he was still sentenced to death. And after a while, Gilles finally confessed and, quote, repented before his hanging, though some believe he did this only under the threat of torture. This is the man that Edward Paynell said was his inspiration and possibly a descendant of. So Edward was charged with 13 counts, including rape, indecent assault, and sodomy against six victims, all but one being a minor. Edward was proud and boastful about his crimes. He stated the mask was not only to disguise him, but also to bring forth the most terror he could get out of his victims. The nails were placed around his wrists, in the lapels of his coat, and in the shoulders of his coat to keep his victims from trying to fight him off. Clever, but evil. In November 1971, he was found guilty and sentenced to 30 years. He did attempt to appeal his conviction, but he was unsuccessful. And then get this. He was released in 1991 for being a model prisoner. And why would he not be a model prisoner? I mean, there's certainly no children in prison for him to attack. But after his release, he went back to Jersey of all places and was, of course, chased off by the locals who didn't want him anywhere near them. He lived on the Isle of Wight and died from a heart attack in 1994. And that's not all. Edward has been looked at as a possible suspect in a wave of child abuse allegations at a particular children's home in Jersey. There is a paper trail showing that he was a frequent visitor at the home, and some said they witnessed him, you know, prowling about the halls at night, possibly chloroforming children to drug them and abuse them. But these reports are unsubstantiated, and yet it is believed he committed many, many more crimes than he was ever caught for. So, Edward Paynell was a sadist and a pedophile 
who likened himself to a 15th century evil man who had the same interests and passions. I know that science is pushing to better understand what happens in the brain that causes adults to be sexually attracted to children, and I try. I try desperately to stay calm and all of that, and I fail miserably. If it is inborn, the want to touch children, they still know it is unacceptable and therefore should not do it. Coming from personal experience, leave children alone. Thanks for listening.